I could almost feel my bones vibrating. And my, my ears started ringing. Some of you know this feeling. And my vision was fading and my knees were buckling. Because I just heard a horrible scream from my basement. And I knew that it was coming from one of my sons. Now, I never run to my sons when they're in agony or they're in pain or they're in trouble. I usually just yell, get over it, suck it up. But this scream was, it was blood curdling. It was filled with panic. And so I rushed down the stairs, and as I was rushing down the stairs, I met my youngest son literally soaked in blood. And my normal reaction is stop whining, suck it up. And I just stared at him and said, I'm about to pass out. And I yelled, Danae! You see, my son was what we call in Tennessee acting a fool. And he had watched some Mary Poppins movie. And how did we end up from Mary Poppins to blood and gore? Well, he decided he was going to stick his arms through his shorts like this and walk around like a penguin. Now, I've never seen Mary Poppins. That must be a part of the movie. I'm not sure. But he ended up falling over, not being able to catch himself, and landing on a wooden pallet in our basement and gashing his head open very, very badly. And Danae arrived at the scene, a lot more composed than I was, and she looked at him and said, he needs to go to the ER. And she immediately turned to me and saw that I was white and about to pass out, and she said, well, I wonder who's going to take him. Because at that point, I was seated with a rag on my head. And this was the middle of summer, and I just ran a few miles, and I'm sure that's why I was feeling woozy. But at the sight of blood, something, something happened. And you, some of you know that. Some of you are professionals in your career. You deal with blood and guts all the time. It doesn't bother you. But for a lot of us, the sight of blood can make us queasy. And Jonah ended up having, I didn't want to say his name, but Jonah, my youngest son, you probably already put that together, ended up having all kinds of stitches in his head. And even when he got home from the ER, I couldn't look at it. But it's a really cool scar, the Mary Poppins scar across his head, if you want to see it. But why does blood do that to us? What, what, why is is there such a power, even for some of us, in the drop of blood, a drop of blood to make us queasy? And the reality is, blood represents life. And when you see, even an animal's blood, you see life leaving this uh, animal or this person, and, and it's not natural, it's not right. Something is happening that's not supposed to happen, and there is a natural reaction with some of us that turns to panic and shock. This is why we see in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when God declares that the punishment for sin is death. 
He then requires blood as the payment of sin. Why? Sin requires life being taken. Sin requires the sacrifice of life. This is why we see in the temple in the Old Testament to have access to God, to have that payment for sin made, that you can have peace with God and you can enter his presence. The sacrificial system was built around blood, the taking of life, another one's life so that you could have access with God. That's why we see in temple worship, there is the sprinkling of blood. People and things are covered in blood. There's the offering of blood, the blood of lambs and goats and bulls to pay the price for sin. And by the way, worship in the Old Testament would have been disgusting. You wouldn't have had an Instagram team at temple worship taking pictures. It, It would have been disgusting. There would have been blood everywhere to declare to us the cost of sin. Life has to be taken. For us to have access to God. Now many Jews in Colossae understanding this. They they had taken part in this kind of worship their whole life. And they had been taught the history of such worship. They couldn't imagine that Jesus could do more than the blood of animals or goats or bulls. Things that they have taken part in their whole life. And so they began to teach Jesus is just another part of the system. Yeah, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust in his cross. But you can't leave the sacrificial system. You can't leave the festivals, the rites that we have taken part in our whole life to be made right with God. And this is why many others in Colossae, the Gentiles, they they kind of bought into such a thing and they took their theology and spirituality and they said if the Jew is going to say Jesus is just another part of the system, then we're going to say the same thing. Jesus is just another God. Jesus is just another emanation of God. And in both of those contexts, Jesus was relegated to less, lesser, less sufficient. He can't do what these other things do. And Paul gives us this section of Scripture, which is this powerful hymn that centers on Christ. Verses 15 through 20. That declares Jesus is supreme to everything, to anyone, and everything. And the only way you can be made right with God is by His life, His blood. It is sufficient to give you peace with God. And notice how he begins this hymn in verse 15. He first of all declares, whose blood is this that gives us peace with God? It's God's King. Verse 15 He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now this word image, it means icon or representation. God is unseen, but Jesus is the visible image of the unseen God. You see God in seeing Jesus. In John 1, we see this is why Jesus is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word means explanation. Jesus is that explanation who is God, who shows us God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he's described as the exegesis of God. 
meaning he exposes to us who God is. He reveals to us who God is. Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of God, the visible representation of God. The book of Hebrews, as we saw read earlier, heard read earlier, says that he's not just an image of God, he is the image of God, and he is the exact image of God. This means this, Jesus isn't less than God, he's not just an image that comes from God that is less of God, no, he is the image of God, the exact image of God. Everything it means to be God is in Jesus, and that's why he can show us God. This word image also in the Bible refers to God's rule or dominion. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And the word image means stamp. But what does that mean? After our likeness and let them have dominion. And so not only is Jesus the expression of God, He is the rule of God. He is God's rule that expresses God. Adam was created in the image of God. Jesus is that image. He is that rule. Adam was created to be like Jesus and be a king like Jesus in the garden to express God's rule. And yet he failed at that. But Jesus is the exact image of God, the exact expressed rule of God. Notice the text continues to explain this. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now there's all kinds of faulty theology built off of that phrase that says Jesus would create it. He wasn't created because we look at verse 16 and it says he created all things. And so what does that word firstborn mean? It refers to his title or his rank. The firstborn is the heir of all things. And what Paul is saying here is he is the image of God, the exact image of God, and he is the one who deserves all things as God's firstborn son. This is his rank. He wasn't created. He's equal with God. It's the same thing God said to David in Psalm 89. I will make him the firstborn of all creation, the highest king. And so when we see firstborn, that's what that means. He is God's king. Notice why, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now notice how creation is described there in light of Jesus. All things were created by him. All things were created, as we see at at the last part of these verses, through him and for him. So by, through, and for. That sums up the reality that everything exists because of Jesus. He is the cause of everything that you see and everything that you can't see right now. The physical realm, material realm, you look around this room and you see it. There's concrete, there's metal, there's flesh and blood people. Jesus is the reason all of these things, all of us, exist. But then there's a spiritual realm. Jesus is the reason for all of those things as well. Everything exists for Jesus' glory. The, the, The act of creation came into the mind of God 
for Jesus. God says, I'm going to create a planet, a universe of things that you can see and things that you can't see. Why? To exalt the Son as King. And so you can say every molecule, every speck of existence in every galaxy and universe came into existence for Jesus. And you could say it came into existence by him because he's the reason it came into existence. When God said, let there be light, Jesus was active. He was active in that moment, but he was also the reason for that moment, that everything outside of God came into existence. Whether you're the things that you see, the things that you don't see, every molecule, Everything in the sky, stars, galaxies, it all exists for Jesus. But notice the way he describes these things that you can see and can't see. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What is he getting at again? This is God's king. And he is the one who asserts God's rule on what you can see and you can't see. And so if you're in Colossae, and you believe in all of these spiritual forces that are out there, all of these gods, and you're beginning to think Jesus is just another emanation of God. He says, no, 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 no. Jesus is God's king, and he is the one who created all of these things. Even the forces of darkness that you can't see and you fear, Jesus created them, and they are in rebellion to him. He is God's king. And he continues to press this point. Notice verse 17. And he is before all things. This could refer to the fact that he's always existed. But I think, again, he's emphasizing this is his rank. This is his proper place. What he could say here is Jesus is first. Jesus was first, and then everything else came into existence. Jesus is priority. Jesus is first in line in the order of all things. And notice he continues... And in him, all things hold together. Now, we could say that Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, by the word of his power, is the one at the heart of everything, holding it together. His power, the image of God as God's king, as God's power, as God's authority. He is holding everything together in this moment. But again, we could go back to he is the reason it all exists. We could even say right now, if God somehow could stop thinking about glorifying Jesus, everything would cease to exist. He is the reason it all exists in this moment. And this also means that nothing comes to us secular. Everything is about Jesus. And nothing we encounter day in and day out is not about Jesus. We don't have certain categories where we say, this is Jesus's, but then over here, this is something else. This is neutral, or this is mine, or this is someone or someone else's. No, it's all Jesus's. This is why even when we think about science, we are discovering Jesus's world. We are discovering his glory as we see how things work. Jesus makes them work that way. 
as we study history, we are uncovering Jesus' story. This is what Jesus wants to happen. This is our story Jesus is writing. As you do math, you are seeing Jesus' logic and Jesus' order in the universe. It's all about Jesus. None of it is secular. It is all for the glory of Christ. And we have to recognize that. But as we take this first section of Scripture, how do we apply it? Well, we apply it this way. Your spirituality must be summed up in this reality. Jesus is my king. If all things were created for Jesus, you were created for Jesus. Do you recognize that in your life? This is why when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, especially grew up in the South, and I've been here, and there's still kind of residue of Bible Belt, and you begin to talk to someone about, are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church here. Yeah, I do this, I do this. I, I, I went to church camp, and I said this prayer, and I used to go to church. And I'll, I usually just cut to the chase and say this. Okay, you say you believe in Jesus, you're a Christian. Are you following Jesus? Are you fo- Let's get to the heart of it. Are you trusting him, believing him? Are you following him? And we could say that this way today. Is Jesus really your king? Do you trust him and believe that he died for your sins? He's raised from the dead. And if you do, he will be your king. He will sum up your life, as we're talking about here. He will hold your life together. He will be first in your life, which is a good question for us today. How do you know that Jesus is your king? How do you know you're following Jesus? Well, does he set the order of your life? Is he first? Meaning, on your, during the day, is Jesus first? Do you order your day where you say Jesus is first? Whatever that looks like for you, reading your Bible and prayer, is Jesus first every day? Let's say as Christians, the first day of the week, Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. Do you order your week just to say to yourself and others in your family, Jesus is going to be first. Before we get going through the week or we do anything else, we're going to say Jesus is first. Why? He's the first of everything. He existed before anything else existed. So we're going to make him first. What about in your budget? When you start dealing with your finances, do you get down to the bottom and say, okay, now Jesus? Or do you start with Jesus? Jesus is first. How are we going to honor Jesus with our money? Because here's the reality. None of those things will make sense in your life, and there will always be disorder until you make Jesus first. There's always going to be a dissonance in your life, and you're going to dive into all of those things and say, why do they exist? Why can't I find happiness here? What's going on here? My, my day, it just doesn't feel right. I don't understand why money exists. Well, is Jesus first? Are you doing things to declare to yourself and your family and others Jesus is first? And then as you live your life, you have to understand this. You are always uncovering Jesus' glory in the world around you. As you look around, as you interact with others created in the image of God, you are interacting with people Jesus created. And you are uncovering his glory at all times. 
And you yourself are displaying his supremacy at all times. And so you have to step back and see the glory in that. Some of you tomorrow, you're going to go into an office and you're going to start crunching numbers. Those are Jesus' numbers. Old math, new math, they're Jesus' math. He did it. And so look into it and say, wow, Jesus made all of this make sense. Give him glory for those things. Maybe you're an athlete. Maybe you're showing certain skills that other people like myself just can't do. Maybe you're teaching and training, serving others. You you walk into the world, you're adding order to the chaos around you. Why, Why are you a part of this construction site? Why are you taking this problem as an engineer and making it make sense? Because this is Jesus' world and his glory is displayed in making order out of chaos. And so I pour this concrete like it's supposed to be poured. Maybe tomorrow you're nurturing life in your home, your kids. Why are you doing that? Because Jesus brought that life into the world for his glory. And that's why you're there to take care of it. Maybe you're taking words and colors and sounds and you're making amazing art. Why? That's Jesus' art. So step back and say, this is Jesus. This is his. This is all his. I want to bring him glory in all of that. So Jesus is God's king. He created us. He deserves all the glory. He must be our king. But notice next, he is the church's king. Verse 18. And he... This this image of God, the one who sustains all of life, holding all things together, he is the head of the body, the church. The word head means source or authority, origin. And when we think about the body, and he, he clarifies here, the church, the gathered community, those who have trusted in him alone for salvation, who believe in his cross, who trust in his righteousness, who are gathered by his spirit, the gathering, the church from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He is the head. We are the body. What this means is the king, creator, sustainer has made himself one with the church in every single way. You can't think of him and not think about his church. He said, no, we are one. In Ephesians 1.21, The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Meaning Jesus says, I am incomplete without my bride. After he dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead. He says, you can't think about me and not think about my church. If you disconnect me from my church, you disconnect me from this glory and this work that I have done in the world. This is why I came into the world to redeem and save my church. And so don't dishonor me. In trying to love me and not love my church. We are one. And if we look at this hymn, if you move from the top down to this verse, and then you go to the bottom of this hymn, verse 20, and you make your way back up, this is the climax of the hymn. The creator, sustainer, The one who rules and reigns, we go to the bottom. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who raised from the dead. And at the center of the hymn is Jesus and his church. Why? The culmination of human history is Jesus and his church. 
The creator has made himself one with his church. God's king is one with his bride. And notice, we could say in the next section, this is how he did it. He is the beginning. Now, we've already said he's the first before all things. But Paul clarifies here the beginning of what? The firstborn from the dead. He begins here to refer to a new creation. If Jesus is the source and beginning of creation in general, here he is the source and beginning of the new creation. When Jesus raised from the dead, there is a new creation that dawned on planet earth, one without sin and death that will last forever. And he came to the planet in flesh and blood of Jesus walking from a first century coffin. And notice the language here, firstborn. He is the heir. He is God's king. This new creation will be given to him that in everything he might be preeminent. Why did God raise him from the dead? Why has God created this new creation from him? So that he might be supreme. So that he might be first. Why did the resurrection happen? It's so that we would stand back and say there is only one who could and has died for sin and his name is Jesus. And there is only one former corpse in a glorified body, and his name is Jesus. God, once again in the resurrection, says, this is my king. This is the image of God. This is the expression of my rule on the planet, Jesus, that in everything he might have preeminence. He's going to raise us from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. He is the first, will be raised from the dead just as he's raised from the dead. Why? For eternity, to say he is preeminent. The creator of life is the redeemer to new life. He is the source of it all. And we will give him credit for that forever and ever and ever. He will be supreme. No one in heaven will be able to stand up and say, I did more than Jesus. Nobody. He is preeminent. He is first. He is supreme. Through creation, time and space history, throughout eternity. And his point here in Colossae, is that he must be supreme in the church. Again, the supreme one has united himself to the church, and he's the only one who's been raised from the dead. And so, to the Colossians, you have to make him supreme, not the law or any other spiritual force, Jesus. The purpose of the church, the sole purpose, the first purpose of the church, is that in everything we do, Jesus must be supreme. We preach a false gospel when we make something else our mission and purpose. Because Jesus is the only one that can forgive sins. He's the only one raised from the dead. And so we say, no, he's going to be supreme in the church. He's king. He's Lord. He's the only former corpse around here. So he's going to tell us how to do things. He's going to be the center of everything. He's king. He's the center of our worship. When we gather for worship, we're not looking for an experience. We're looking to a person. And his name's Jesus. When you come in here, it's not about what kind of feelings can the songs give me. It, it, it's not about, it's not even just about you by yourself. Why? He's one with the church. That's why we leave the lights on around here. We're the Motel 6 of churches. We leave the lights on. Some of you get it, some of you don't. Why? Because 
We, don't, we want you to see the glory of Christ all around this room in the church. He's the one that created the church. Look around the room. Look at the glory around the room. We leave the lights on because we want this to be about Jesus. We're not going to spotlight one person. We want this to be about Jesus. He's going to tell us what we do. He's going to be first in everything. And he's going to sustain our why. Why do we exist? we got to ask that question. Everything we do as a church, why are we doing this? And when the answer is not Jesus, close the doors. When we can't start a discussion and say, we're doing this first and foremost for Jesus, then we're not going to do it. If we can't answer that question, whatever our mission is, whatever decisions we're making, Jesus is preeminent, his glory being displayed here and to the ends of the earth. That is why we exist. And if he's king, his word is authority. Jesus is head of the body. He's the one that tells us what to do. How do we find that out? In his word. The word of God is our sole authority around here. How we govern ourselves, the order of our church, who and who can do what and what they should do. It's all about the word of God. We don't go to culture and say, you tell us what to believe now. We're not going to do that. Never. And when culture disagrees with the word of God, Jesus is preeminent. Whatever it costs. Jesus is preeminent. We're not chasing fads or programs. We're chasing Jesus. And so you know what happens in churches where it's always, what kind of cutesy thing can we do to get a lot of people to come? They're always chasing the next cutesy thing. It's a lot easier just to make it always about Jesus. Opening up the Word of God and saying, this is going to be about Jesus week in and week out, week in and week out, and it's just going to be about Jesus. And it makes church a lot easier. And it's a lot more refreshing. Why? Because we're constantly reminded, I'm not King Jesus is. He's exalted as Lord over sin and death, and that is the most relevant thing that you can offer the community and world around you. You want to be relevant to the world around you? Stop asking them what they need and give them what they need in Jesus. That's relevant. A man, literally a man, who got up and walked out of his coffin. What else would you need? What else would you want? That is what's pressing on you right now, right? What's going to happen when you die? You look around daily and there are leaders and celebrities and friends from high school that are just moving off of that finite conveyor of life and they're falling and your time is coming. And what if I told you today, you can be raised from the dead if you are one with Christ and believe in him. What else would we want to talk about around here? Jesus must be preeminent because he is the firstborn from the dead. But notice, this is the culmination when we get to verse 19, where all of this is headed. King, creator, sustainer, Lord, redeemer of the church. So, what does all this mean for us, Paul? Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now that is to be mind-blowing. The one who created all things sustains time, space, and history. It's all about him. He took on flesh. 
He became a man. And notice he says, for in him all the fullness. This means everything he's talked about before and everything it would take to be God. The completeness of God. The essence of God. Everything it means to be God was pleased to dwell. The word pleased, look at it. It means God desired for this to happen. It was his plan, but even more than that, he uses the word pleased, meaning it was God's delight to put all of his fullness, all of himself in flesh. God delighted in doing that to display his glory. Notice, he continues, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So why did God take on flesh? Why did the image of God come as a man? 100% man, 100% God, conceived of the Virgin Mary at the incarnation. Why did he do this? Notice, to reconcile to himself. The word reconcile means to bring together two warring parties. Two parties are at war. They're brought to harmony. So who are the warring parties? Notice he says all things. To reconcile all things to himself. He is the creator of all things, but all things are raging against him. And so he takes on flesh to make peace with all things. Things that you see, things that you don't see, whether on earth or in heaven. The planet, the sky, the stars, everything in the universe to reconcile to himself as its rightful king. You see, in Genesis, Adam rejected God's rule. And in God's rule, there is goodness and life. And so when Adam said, no, 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 I'm going to be king and do what I want to do. I'm not going to image forth your authority. I'm going to do what I want to do. Then God says, okay, have at it. Part of the curse is that God just lets creation unravel apart from his authority and doesn't stop it. That's why we see death infecting life. It's because God said, okay, that's what you've chosen with your sin. The punishment of sin is death. And God allows it to unravel. Death, decay in the world. That's why we see nature raging in unnatural ways. That's why you see cancer The body turns on itself. God has said, here's the curse. Here's the curse of sin. And death begins to move throughout the planet. Tornadoes and hurricanes. It's disorder. It's chaos. Because God has said, here you go. And we see the universe groaning for its rightful king. That's the way Paul explains all of this in Romans 8. As you look at creation and you see deadness, and you see disorder, and you see chaos, there is a groaning from creation. What is the groaning for? Jesus to come rule. Jesus to come rule with the kings and queens that he has purchased with his blood. To come reconcile all things to himself. Because at this moment, all things are at war with Jesus. And so we see the king, creator, sustainer, taking on flesh to bring all things in harmony. Now, now think about this. When you see Jesus in flesh and blood, you see the image of God in flesh and blood, and he touches his creation. 
And things that are broken are made right. There are limbs that are deformed and broken. And they take their right order. They fall in line. Because the one who is first is present. You see the one who sustains time and space and human history. And he steps in to time and space and human history. But then he turns around and he begins to speak to demons. And he makes them go into pigs who run off hills and commit suicide. And what, why is that story so cool? Because you are seeing God's image, the one who created what you see and don't see. He's saying to us, the king is here. I control the forces of darkness too. Don't forget about that. Don't be scared of it. Trust me and look to me. You see the image of God in flesh reconciling all things to himself. And this is what we see in the Gospels when he walks up to others created in the image of God and he says, follow me. The reason for their existence is in flesh and blood in front of them. And he says, if you want to have life and life abundantly, take up your cross and follow me. You really want to have life? Give your life away. Lose your life and come with me and you will find life. The reason, the word, the explanation of all things is in their presence. And so what do they do? They obey and follow him and find life. What are you seeing in all of that? You're seeing him reconcile all things to himself. The king reconciling his creation that is against him to himself. But notice what is crucial to all of this. Making peace by the blood of his cross. See, we can talk about reconciliation all we want. But there is no eternal peace without the blood of the cross. He establishes peace. The word peace, it's similar to reconciliation. It's the absence of war. In the Old Testament, it's shalom. God's people were to be at peace with God. His presence was to be with them. And he would establish peace with their enemies. He would defeat his enemies and they would live in peace. And here he says he makes shalom by the blood of his cross. Now this is a powerful word and this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. And it points to the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross to reconcile you and I, but not just you and I, all of creation to himself. Everything he created. At the cross, he makes peace. In flesh, at the cross, Jesus is enduring the hostility for sin. God hates sin. God is angered towards sin. All sin will be punished forever in hell, in God's judgment. Eternal judgment. God hates it. And that is the war that is raging with you because of your sin. But on the cross, Jesus says, give me that wrath. And he endures that wrath in his flesh. Everything that you've ever done that would anger God, Jesus says, punish me for it. The blowtorch of God's wrath that should be unleashed upon you forever and ever was unleashed upon Jesus. And for those who believe in him, you can say that payment has been paid. There is no more wrath for me. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's nothing left. None. Because Jesus endured it. And if he endured the anger of God for you, you can have peace with God. 
You can be reconciled to God. But here is a point that Paul is making here. If the penalty for sin has been paid at the cross, the curse of death can be alleviated because of the cross. This is why when Jesus is gurgling in his own blood on the cross and he is screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we see in those moments? The sky goes dark and the ground begins to shake. Why? Their creator is dying and there's darkness and there's the quaking of the ground beneath people's feet. Why? Because across town, there is a veil in the temple that separated men from God that is being torn into. And God is saying, there is a new world for those who would follow me. There is a new world through the cross where you can be forgiven of your sin and creation that is groaning and shaking and dark will be redeemed. The cross not only redeems you who believe, but it will be the cross that redeems all of creation. Everything. The world around us is not irrelevant. Heaven is not you sitting on a cloud playing a flute or a harp, mumbling to yourself forever in pure joy, holy, holy, holy. No. It is this planet fully redeemed by the blood of Christ and all of those who would trust in his blood. And so if you're here today and you say, the blood of Christ is sufficient to reconcile all things, surely the blood of Christ is sufficient to give you peace. That's Paul's point. If it can do that, it can do anything for you. The blood of, cross, cross, blood of the cross is sufficient to save you from your sins so that you no longer stand before God an enemy but a son. And so for the one here today who would make Jesus supreme, how do you make Jesus your king? You start at the cross and you say, only his blood is sufficient to save me from my sin. Only his cross is sufficient to save me from hell. It is his blood. And so if you're one of the Colossians and you believe in these angels, Paul is saying, no, he created the angels. If you're, if you're adhering to the law, he says, no, the law is about him. He is above and superior to the law. Why? His blood, his life redeems all things. You see, what we do here is we exalt those things in our life that we think are going to bring us peace. If today you said, what is supreme in my life? What am I chasing after? What do I want right now? What have I made supreme? It is probably that thing that you think is going to bring you peace. A better marriage, better health, better behaved kids, a better government, vacation, food, drink, it's going to give me peace. And in the same way the Colossians would say, these forces are superior to Jesus, you are saying those things are superior to Jesus. And what Jesus would say to you today is, no, I created all those things for my glory, and you don't understand even those things that you want apart from me. And I must be above them. And you must see me as supreme by seeing my cross as sufficient. You see, there's power in the blood that can make us queasy. But there is a weakness in the blood of the cross that should make you uneasy. 
as the creator becomes weak and suffocates for your sin. As the one who sustains all life, his life is taken for your sin. And as the one who gave you life for his glory chokes on his own blood, it is his blood that gives you peace. Will you have peace today? Will you have peace today by becoming weak before the blood of Christ?